All right, great. So um, I want to talk about nutrition and immune function. I'm going to share my screen and with slides in just a second. But um, the objective of this uh, of this presentation is really for people to gain more confidence in their bodies. I think what we watched during the last three years is people beginning to feel like they're frail, like the, any common cold or flu virus that comes along, my gosh, it could take you out. And it certainly does have that capacity for some people, but the vast majority of us have really incredible immune systems. And with a little bit of help doing the right things, you can optimize your immune function and protect yourself against disease. So. Let's go on ahead and share the screen with the slides here. And so far, so good, everything's working. This is great. All right, so um, I always like to start with some basics and foundational information that I think most people know and uh, don't know rather. And I think that ignorance as in just lack of knowledge is one of the things that makes people feel insecure about their health and possibly make bad decisions about what to do about their health. So believe it or not, the ancient Greeks knew about immunity and doctors were writing about people who recovered from the plague and then became immune for life. The earliest attempt to induce immunity uh, took place in 10th century China. Healthy people were exposed to smallpox under the skin or in the nasal passages. It was duplicated during the Ottoman Empire with limited success. And then in 1796, Edward Jenner discovered inoculation for smallpox. In the 19th century, Robert Koch discovered that infectious diseases were caused by microorganisms or bacteria and could be transmitted from one animal to another. And then I think we're all familiar with the story. Pasteur accidentally inoculated eight chickens with chicken cholera bacillus, and he called his treatment vaccination. And this, all of this combined established the germ theory of disease. By the end of the 19th century, what we knew about all of this were that germs and bacteria cause disease, immunity to infection could be induced via a vaccine, and regulation of this process was really important to prevent antibodies from attacking self. So we'll talk about regulation of the immune system in just a second here. But an important note here is that germs and bacteria do cause disease, but the potential to cause disease is influenced by the health of the host. So the fact that something is circulating out there, which it does every cold and flu season, doesn't mean that you're going to get it. And even if you get it, doesn't mean that it's going to be devastating. So the immune system has evolved over millions of years in order to develop defense mechanisms to protect humans from foreign invaders. And there are three um, properties, key properties that we're going to discuss. One is the highly diverse repertoire of cells that can recognize an infinite number of pathogens, the memory to enable rapid recall and response and tolerance to avoid damage to cells and tissues of the body. In other words, your immune system is so sophisticated that it's supposed to recognize something that is not supposed to be in your body versus cells of the body. What this does, all of this, is it protects us from causing disease, uh, from disease causing microorganisms that get into the body, foreign tissue organs or cells that may have been transplanted. This is why transplant patients have to take immunosuppressant drugs and the body's own cells that may have become cancerous. It is an amazingly complex system. It is far more sophisticated than any of the most powerful computers that we have on the planet right now. It can recognize and remember millions of different pathogens, produce fluids and cells targeted specifically to these pathogens and eliminate them. 
And the four main types of invaders that we'll talk about briefly are bacteria, parasites, fungi, and viruses, with a particular emphasis on viruses because that is what people are most concerned about right now. So immune function and dysfunction. When functioning normally, the immune system knows the difference between self and not self. In fact, the immune cells normally leave cells alone that carry a distinctive self-marker molecule and it attacks only those that identify themselves as non-self. Anything that triggers an immune response is called an antigen. Foreign invader antigens carry marker molecules that identify themselves as non-self. When the immune system mistakes self for non-self and launches an attack, the result is autoimmune disease. When the immune system responds to a normally harmless substance, the result is allergy. The antigen that causes allergic reaction is called an allergen. So both allergy and autoimmune represent um, a misfunction or malfunction of the immune system, which can be regulated and fixed. That will not be part of our discussion today. We're gonna deal with the other side of it, which is when immune function is not up to where it should be and what you can do to change that. So there are three main forms of immunity. One is acquired, another is innate, and three is adaptive. All right, so acquired immunity, we'll start there. So some antibodies cross the placenta and enter the bloodstream of the fetus. Newborn infants acquire some temporary immunity from antibodies passed on from the mother through breast milk until the immune system develops. Immunity develops throughout life via a growing number of memory T and B cells after infection. In other words, Something important to understand about this is if you never get sick, you can never develop a strong immune system. So I've always told people, obviously we don't wish sickness on anybody and some sickness is serious and we don't wish that on anybody at all. But the, the other side of that is constantly trying to avoid being sick is like avoiding the gym because it's uncomfortable, but that's the only way you build muscles. You have to have illness in order to build a strong immune system. Immunity can be acquired without exposure to a pathogen. We call that immunization, right? Most immunizations involve injection of a bacteria or viruses that have been inactivated or weakened, and then these induce an immune response but don't result in full expression of the disease. So for example, when um, you receive a flu vaccine, you're not supposed to get full-blown full flu. The innate immune system is an ancient defense system that we inherited from invertebrates. It's comprised of cells and proteins that are always ready to fight microbes and infection. They kill pathogens directly or slow down infection until the adaptive immune system can become engaged. They're immediately available to fight many pathogens, but they're not specific to a particular pathogen, and you don't get lifetime immunity as a result of this. The adaptive immune system is a more recently evolved system of immune responses involving B and T cell lymphocytes. Immune responses by these cells are based on antigen recognition. This is found only in vertebrates. Antibodies are proteins that bind to microorganisms and neutralize their activity. The production of an antibody to a particular pathogen is an adaptive immune response. That's why we call it adaptive immunity. Adaptive immunity takes time to develop and activate. It is specific to the pathogen and it confers lifetime immunity. This is in contrast to innate immunity, which is ready all the time. It's the line of first defense. It can neutralize things a little bit until you can develop an antibody. Now, when we talk about lifetime antibody, it's one interesting thing I wanna point out here is that it's true that antibody response wanes over, antibody counts wane over time. But an interesting thing happened in 2020 with a researcher in the UK 
into a plasma samples that were part of a prospective study and exposed them to SARS-CoV-2 in a Petri dish. And she found that um, the blood samples had immune cells that were able to neutralize SARS-CoV-2, even though it hadn't been encountered before. So our immune system is so sophisticated, it can even say, listen, this isn't entirely like what I responded to last time, but it's close enough that I should probably get involved and do something about it, all right? So we have a lot of protections in place. The adaptive and innate immune systems work together. The cells of the adaptive and innate immune system travel to the site of infection and injury, um, and uh, they want to clean up infection and dead tissue. Inflammation triggers this response, and inflammation is beneficial, but not when it becomes chronic. So people think that all inflammation is bad, which is why everybody wants to suppress a fever as soon as it started, but I'm going to show you that that's really not a very good idea. Now, we also have some innate barrier systems or external defenses. This is nonspecific immunity. It protects against irritants or abnormal substances that threaten our internal environment. And so some of these areas are like skin and mucous membranes. These are mechanical barriers that keep stuff from getting into your system, tears and mucus, stomach acid, and the phagocytosis of bacteria. The mucosa covers respiratory, digestive, urogenital tracts, eye conjunctiva, inner ear, um, exocrine glands, mammary glands, stomach, liver, pancreas, and the role is to protect the surfaces, surfaces against pathogens. In healthy adults, something called mucosa-associated lymphoid tissue or MOLT contains 80% of all immune cells in the body. And this is another way that you repel pathogens when they're trying to get into your system. So for example, a cold virus gets into your nose. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's gonna make you sick because the mucus in your nose is supposed to, when it's working well, try to expel, capture and expel critters that don't belong there. A healthy microbiome helps to prevent inflammation, generates an anti-inflammatory reaction in the GI tract, protects epithelial cells from pathogens. If that beneficial bacteria is compromised, the immune system becomes compromised. And unfortunately, life is filled with um, ways in which we compromise our immune systems and that's or our um, microbiome, which compromises our immune system. And that's everything from um, the overprescribing of antibiotics to the eating of poor diets, uh, obesity, all that sort of thing. So many, many ways in which this gets disrupted. And it's a fairly new science. We really didn't pay much attention to this when I got into the healthcare business almost 30 years ago. When the gut bacteria barrier is intact, antigens are blocked from entering the bloodstream and pathogens are eliminated before they get in. But when the barrier breaks down, things that shouldn't be getting into the bloodstream get in. And that's everything from um, partially digested food proteins that can lead to autoimmune disease or antigens that can cause allergic responses. Um, and uh, of course, viruses and, and pathogens that would normally be expelled. So we'll talk about this a little bit later, but if you have a compromised gut microbiome, fixing it is a really good idea because you can't restore normal immune function without doing that. Mast cells protect the internal surfaces against the, of the body against pathogens. You find these in the lungs, the skin, tongue, linings of the nose and intestinal tract. They're involved in symptoms of allergy. So and they're also involved in eliminating parasitic worms. And there's a hypothesis that since people in developed countries no longer are exposed to parasites as much, then the mast cells stay, stay busy by responding to other substances, which may be why we see a 
bigger propensity for allergy right now than we used to. It's a hypothesis. I'm throwing it out there because it's interesting and perhaps worth considering, but I don't think that um, we are stuck with allergies. There are a lot of things you can do to resolve allergies in spite of this. Natural killer cells are lymphocytes filled with chemicals that respond to all kinds of pathogens, including cancer cells, by the way. They're found in the lymph nodes, the spleen, the bone marrow, they circulate in the bloodstream, they attack cells carrying foreign or abnormal molecules on the surface, and they attack and kill viruses. They often are hidden because they grow inside infected cells, and then they can spill small fragments in uh, cell membranes. B lymphocytes are the most important cells of the adaptive immune system. B lymphocytes mature in the bone marrow. They secrete proteins called antibodies. Those are the very disease-specific white blood cells or uh, immune cells that can go after viruses. They fight specific pathogens. Each B cell is programmed to make one specific antibody. There's an antibody for this year's circulating cold virus. There's an antibody for dozens and dozens of flu viruses and all kinds of other crud that has gotten into your body. I'm 66 years old and believe me that a lot of crud has gotten into a body this age and been neutralized by antibodies. Once activated by contact with a pathogen, they form plasma cells that produce antibodies. Those neutralize the pathogens until other cells can remove them. And some of those other cells would be like macrophages. They act like little Pac-Men. They come in and they clean up the debris and garbage, it's like taking out the trash in your system. After an infection, memory B cells circulate in order to generate a faster response to the same antigen if it infects the body again. So theoretically, what happens in a healthy person is you might get exposed to the same virus numbers of times and each time because viruses mutate. And by the way, they don't generally want to kill their host because if they do, they have no place to live, right? But as viruses mutate, you may be exposed to another strain, but even though it's not entirely exactly like the first strain, your antibodies will recognize enough of it to go to the rescue. And most of the time in a healthy person keep you from getting sick again. Your T lymphocytes mature in the thymus. They attack microbes inside cells that antibodies can't get to. They also fight specific pathogens. They can assist other immune cells or attack directly. And then after infection, they remain to provide faster reaction in the event of an infection with the same um, pathogen once again. There are three types of lymphocytes, helper T cells, which help the B cells and help the macrophages to kill microbes and ingest them, that Pac-Man thing that I was talking about. Cytotoxic T lymphocytes directly kill infected cells and regulatory T cells which control immune response and prevent overreaction and autoimmunity. And here's what I mean by this. And it's a very important thing to understand. When your immune system mounts a defense against an uh, you know, incoming pathogen, that's normal. What's supposed to happen is once that pathogen is neutralized, the immune system says, okay, we're done now. So we can lower the numbers of all of these immune cells that are circulating. So it works on a feedback loop like your furnace. So if you have your, your uh, HVAC system set at 70 degrees, as soon as it dips a little bit below that temperature in your house, 
the, um, uh, the thermostat will kick on the furnace to bring it back up to 70 degrees and then kick off as soon as it reaches that threshold. And that's the way your immune system works. And when you end up with autoimmune disease, that's the immune system not knowing how to properly shut itself off. It can be taught to do that in many cases, but um, like I said, we'll focus more on how we build to the place where your immune system is more responsive to pathogens coming in. So here's what we have with the adaptive immune response. First, recognition. Something is in the body that shouldn't be there. Activation, antibody producing cells, effector T lymphocytes. The effector phase, get rid of those antigens. Decline, apoptosis, cell death. Memory, some antibodies survive. All right, so that's the system. Now let's talk about the lymph nodes and the lymph system a little bit, similar to plasma in the veins. It's about 90% water, 10% solutes like proteins and cellular waste products. It can also contain bacteria from diseased tissues and white blood cells that fight these pathogens. Lymph is transported through the body, through the lymph vessels, which are stimulated by a skeletal muscle, muscle pump. And that is why sometimes massage will stimulate lymphatic function if your lymph vessels are not functioning properly. Contractions of skeletal muscles constrict the vessels to push the fluid forward and through the system. The nodes are small and kidney shaped. The highest concentration of them is in the armpit and in the groin. The outside capsule is made of really fibrous, dense fibrous connective tissue, and the inside is filled with tissue containing lymphocytes and macrophages. In other words, your lymph nodes house a lot of immune functions. That's why you have to be very careful about how many of these little critters you allow to have taken out of your body. The nodes filter debris or cells and lymph macrophages and lymphocytes attack and kill microbes. The filtered lymph carried out of the nodes toward the lymphatic ducts. The tonsils are actually lymphatic nodules. There are five tonsils, which contain B and, and T cells, which protect the body from inhaled or ingested substances. They often become inflamed in response to an infection. I posted an article, very long article in our library a few years ago about the inadvisability of removing tonsils unless you really have to. When I was a kid, because of by virtue of my age, it was common for all children to have their tonsils taken out at some point in time. And um, so both my sister and I had our tonsils taken out. The sentiment is changing a little bit. Um, and there are times clearly when they become so inflamed and, and infected that you have to take them out. But um, there is a growing realization that um, these were not put into our bodies. You know, th th this idea that there are parts of the body that are just disposable. Um, and this is what causes people to have their gallbladders taken out as soon as they have uh, any any gallbladder inflammation and and gosh you don't need your appendix and well the the research is showing increasingly that we ought to be a whole lot more conservative about taking out body parts including the tonsils so my immune system is uh, compromised just a tiny bit there are ways to compensate for it uh, by doing other things really, really right. But because my tonsils were taken out, there's one line of defense that I don't have. And many of you may be in the same situation. The pyrus patches are found in the ileum of the small intestine. They contain T and B cells that monitor the contents of your intestines for pathogens and then trigger an immune response if they detect anything there. 
The spleen is another um, uh, body part that's taken out as part of the immune system, sometimes a little bit more often than it should be. It filters blood, removes damaged blood cells, and then the macrophages, those Pac-Man type critters I talked about before, before, digest and recycle hemoglobin. The spleen stores platelets to be released in response to blood loss. And again, you have a huge reservoir of immune cells in your spleen. And again, if you're watching this and you've had your gallbladder taken out, you've had your appendix taken out and your tonsils and your spleen, and believe me, we see this kind of thing often with clients who consult with us. That doesn't mean that you're doomed. It just means that you have to work a little bit harder at other things in order to stay healthy. And then one last thing, the thymus is a small triangular organ in the back of the sternum, which produces and trains T cells during fetal development throughout childhood. Um, so by puberty, the immune system is supposed to be mature and the role of the thymus lessens and becomes a little bit more inactive. So um, if a child, optimally, a child who's vaginally born, breastfed and eats a great diet, doesn't become overweight, and can maintain all of his or her body parts should reach adulthood with a really well-functioning immune system that has been trained throughout the child's lifetime by getting sick and recovering and getting sick and recovering to the place where um, the exposure to more and even more pathogenic um, uh, antigens should not be such a problem in most cases. All right, so once an antigen is discovered, the lymphocytes return to the lymph nodes with a description of the antigen. And this is like a blueprint. This stimulates T lymphocytes and B lymphocytes to multiply, and that stimulates the production of antibodies. It takes four to six days to create an antibody to a new antigen. And so sometimes the, um, the, the innate immune system can neutralize something and make it go away before the, um, uh, the uh, adaptive immune system has to get involved. But if not, the adaptive system will eventually get involved. And the reason why you might be sick for a while is because you are, your body's busy producing the antibodies that are required to get rid of whatever crud that you have. All right, so let's talk a little bit about inflammation, which is an important part of the body's immune system. It assists in healing injuries, wounds, damaged tissue, defends against viruses and bacteria. If you were not capable of generating inflammation, wounds and sores would not heal and infections would get worse and cause death. The problem is uncontrolled and chronic inflammation, which plays a role in the development of chronic disease. So your inflammatory markers are made up of complex fatty acids. Leukotrienes and prostaglandins are made from a precursor, which is arachidonic acid. And we'll talk about the source of arachidonic acid and how you can avoid chronic inflammation by paying attention to your diet in a little bit here. So these inflammatory markers are responsible for a lot of the symptoms that we associate with inflammation. So you need inflammation. It facilitates the delivery of immune cells to the site of infection or injury in order to destroy pathogens, stimulates local blood clotting. It's a physical barrier to spreading the infection in the bloodstream and promotes tissue repair. During the inflammatory process and as part of addressing injury or a pathogen, the surrounding tissue is damaged and the tissues are repaired after the threat's neutralized. So after, again, you have this feedback loop like the thermostat on your system, on your HVAC system, that the inflammation is supposed to go away. Inflammation is always supposed to be transitory. 
All right. And um, memory lymphocytes remain in case the same invader appears again, the response time will be faster. But the bottom line is that it's not inflammation that's the problem, it's chronic inflammation that's the problem. So acute inflammation is generally caused by bacteria or viruses or an injury. The onset's rapid, it lasts for a few days. If it turns into a chronic condition, it usually is because the underlying health of the individual was compromised before the injury or infection. Chronic inflammation is caused by serial bacterial infections. So we see this all the time. People who have um, UTIs five times a year and take antibiotics or chronic sinus infections and that sort of thing. Um, viruses, irritants like smoking, autoimmune disease, fat cells. The onset is slow and cumulative, can last for months, years, or decades. And um, the outcomes include anything ranging from tissue death to premature death of the individual. So it's chronic inflammation you worry about. So persistent inflammation really is too much of something that we would normally consider a good thing. Inflammatory disease is an exaggeration of the normal immune inflammation response. The body miscalculates, mounts an aggressive response when there's no invader, there's no injury. It's not warranted, and the number of immune cells recruited is even larger than it would be for a normal threat. More prostaglandins are produced, more blood vessels dilate, more redness and swelling, and more pain. And this results in more white blood cells and more damage to the tissue. Since the activity never stops, the body never has a chance to settle down and heal. That's why, and, and then chronic inflammation is a common denominator along with excess weight and obesity for almost any disease that you don't want to get. So this brings us to fever, which is triggered in response to infection. It raises the internal temperature out of, abnormal range, out of the normal range. It speeds up the body's response to infection and slows or stops the replication of the pathogen. So lowering a fever is usually not a good idea. I've written reference papers on this as well. It can slow the process of healing. And we've reached the place where people know so little about the function of their body and they're so terrified anytime something happens, any type of illness, whatever, that they think that you automatically want to um, reduce the, the fever because it's dangerous to have a high fever. And it is dangerous if the fever goes too high, but when you reduce the fever, your body is compromised in its ability to recover from whatever crud you have. So infections include everything from the common cold, chronic hepatitis, HIV. The most common are bacteria, viruses, sometimes parasites, although those are overdiagnosed in the United States. Each uses a different method to cause infection, which is addressed by your specific immune responses, which I've covered before. All viruses plus some bacteria and parasites must enter the cells of the body to survive. And this goes back to something I said earlier that you need to repeat to yourself till you're not panicked about viruses anymore. And that is that unless you are severely compromised, viruses don't wanna kill you because then they have no place to live, all right? Infected cells display pieces of the invading microbes on their surfaces. That's how the natural killer cells know to go after them. And then antibodies assist by attaching to and clearing viruses before they have a chance to get worse. Most bacteria live in the spaces between the cells. They're pretty easy for antibodies to find. Pathogens trying to get into the body are encountered by the barrier systems, which I described earlier, like the skin is a barrier system, the mucous membranes are a barrier system. By the way, sneezing and coughing are attempts to get microbes out of the respiratory system. And so um, you will have to be careful about how much suppression you use there as well. 
Underneath the epithelial layer are macrophages, B cells, T cells, ready to go all the time to go after foreign invaders. And then the innate immune system kicks in and eventually the adaptive system kicks in. And by the way, you have other things too. So if you if you're, uh, have a runny nose and a lot of mucus, that's your body saying, you know what, we have to get rid of this crud. And so the only way to do that is to trap the crud in more and more mucus. That's why you're blowing your nose all the time when you have a cold. The stomach contains strong stomach acid that destroys pathogens that are consumed in food. And by the way, I've written papers on this, taking proton pump inhibitors, uh, you know, all the purple pills because everybody's eating terrible diets that, that uh, cause such discomfort. Um, one of the leading causes of food poisoning, illness resulting from food poisoning is people taking so many acid suppressors so that they can continue their poor dietary habits. Um, you don't have to worry about the skin unless it's unless you have some type of breach, like a large cut or injury, that sort of thing. That's how pathogens get into the skin. But the skin does a pretty good job of keeping things out as well. So your general immunity can be strong or weak, short-lived or long-lasting, depending on the type of antigen presented, the amount of it, and the route by which it enters your system. Immunity can be influenced by genes. So when faced with the same antigen, some people have a strong immune response, some a weaker response, and some are incapable of responding. But the bottom line is whatever your immune system is doing right now, whatever its state is right now, it can be improved through diet and lifestyle habits and other means. So if you're one of those people, we encounter them all the time, who says, oh my gosh, every year if there's something traveling around, I get it. I usually get it three times. And if you're one of those people who just dreads getting the flu because the last time you had it, you were down for three weeks, that doesn't have to be the way it is forever. You can fix it. A person who's encountered an antigen can respond quickly to a second encounter without, um, without so much time lapse. And the second response can be stronger. Hypersensitivity is when you get an abnormal reaction. Autoimmunity is when you get a reaction against self, the, the immune system's out of control and chronic inflammation is immune-mediated inflammatory disease. So you don't wanna have a hyperactive immune system and you don't wanna have an underactive immune system. And just like everything else, you know, your computers, for example, when you don't have viruses on your computers and you shut them down and get the updates and all that sort of thing, you just take it for granted that your computer is pretty much gonna work every day and your immune system can do that too if you'll just help it a little bit. So in summary, now we're gonna get on to the really juicy stuff here. There are four general functions of the immune system. Create a barrier to prevent pathogens from entering the body. Identify them if somehow a barrier is breached. Eliminate pathogens, generate immunological memory. The body's immune system, as I mentioned, carefully calibrated to mount very specific immune responses to foreign invaders. In healthy humans, the immune system knows the difference between self and non-self. It knows how to switch itself off. It's affected by many things, a little bit of genes, a whole lot of exposure to pathogens, diet and lifestyle choices, and that sort of thing. And so um, where, where you, your genetic susceptibility comes in, I'll use myself as an example. I come from a family of people where women have autoimmune diseases. I'm the first woman on my mother's side of the family who doesn't have autoimmune diseases. My sister has them, my mother had them, my grandmother had them. All right, I've taken care of myself differently because I am well aware of my genetic susceptibility and I do not want to end up with rheumatoid arthritis or something like that. So if you are genetically susceptible, note to self, 
Take extra good care of yourself so that this doesn't happen to you. All right, so let's go on to talk about things to do. Humans are constantly infected with multiple viral agents. You cannot avoid it. We're exposed to up to you know, a billion new viral particles every single day. So if you can't avoid it, I mean, even if you stay inside your house, you can't avoid it. Better to work on protecting yourself. And that is building immune function. And the immune system and its function are based on the health and habits of the human in which the immune system lives. All right, so some basics. Nutritional inadequacy increases the susceptibility to infection and can lead to more severe infection. Now, I'm not talking about inadequacy like calorie deficiency, although that would certainly make a person more susceptible to illness, obviously. I'm referring to poor diets that don't include enough densely nutritious foods and plants. So most people eat enough more than enough calories if you've been out and looked around lately. The problem is wrong choices, right? And this may explain why older people and obese people are more likely to have severe flu, including COVID, because they um, most people are not eating so well who are younger, and they don't magically change their habits when they retire and uh, enter older age, right? So that's the problem. Optimal nutrition provides overall health and a healthy gut microbiome, which regulates the immune system. The microbiome is part of the thermostat program. So here are the things you want to pay attention to. The food you eat. I wrote a book called Food Over Medicine, and there are a lot of different ways you can categorize food, but I'll just give you one idea here that I think is really important. Um, you can have food, I think, that you should definitely stay away from. Oils, they're calorie dense. Uh, most people can't afford to eat too many calories, right? That's why we have an epidemic of obesity. Um, dairy, I, I think it's the only food group that, that warrants some consideration for elimination. So we have foods, category A, don't eat. Then we have middle category. I call it the no harm, no foul. So pretzels and crackers, I don't really see those causing a lot of problems for anybody. I never saw anybody die from eating too many crackers, but there is absolutely nothing healing about eating crackers. That does not build a strong body. So then you get to the third category, which is the food as medicine, right? These are the foods you wanna eat. So I instruct our clients to go to the grocery store and start looking at this as if it's the drugstore, all right? There's a class of fruits called, of, of drugs called stone fruits. I'm gonna get some of those. There's a class of drugs called root vegetables. I'm for sure gonna get some of those. There's a class of drugs called um, uh, leafy greens. I wanna make sure I get some of those, right? So think of really focusing on food as medicine. The gut microbiome, medications. I mean, we, like I mentioned before, we overuse antibiotics like crazy. Smoking, alcohol consumption, weight, BMI, a risk factor for everything. Age is a factor, but there's a lot you can do to make it not as much of a factor. Stress, physical fitness, even the time of day can influence your vulnerability. Comorbidities, frailty, and vaccination. So immunosenescence is the lowering of immune response based on aging. And the factors are you decrease production of cells in the bone marrow, which is where a lot of your immune cells come from, decreased output of naive T cells, which decreases the ability to respond to new antigens, less cytotoxicity of immune cells. So older people become more susceptible to viral infections. 
Studies show that frailty results in less robust immune response after vaccination and increased post-vaccination flu. And by the way, the number one reason why people end up in nursing homes is not because they aspire to be there. I've never met anybody whose goal was to end up in a nursing home, right? The reason they end up there is frailty. They're incapable of living by themselves. So you want to build a strong body now so that you can stay independent for your whole life. I'm in my forever house. I intend to live here until I die, but that is dependent on working very hard right now to make sure that I can do that. Aging increases the concentration of inflammatory markers in the blood, unless you do something deliberately to keep that from happening. Older and more frail people are more likely to develop higher inflammatory response to infection. It's re referred to as a cytokine storm. And you can reverse this with better diet and hydration and exercise and sunlight and probiotics. So a gradually uh, malfunctioning immune system, gradual weakness and inability to perform even basic physical tasks for independent living, that, that, that's what goes on every day. It's what happens to most people in our country as they age, but it is not what is supposed to happen to most people. And uh, by the way, by way of example, my, my dad's almost 93 years old and he does need some assistance. We can't let him drive a car, for example, obviously, but he's living at home independently, he sleeps in his own bed and he, we, we're not gonna let him ever go to a nursing facility, all right? But, but the beginning of that ability started decades ago with the things that he did, exercise, eating right, et cetera. The effect of obesity, it reduces your immune competence. It, that, that's one of the reasons why the CDC says that people most likely to get COVID were obese, hypertensive, or diabetic or all three, right? It impairs the activity of your helper, helper T cells and all these immune cells that I described earlier, decreases antibody production, increases susceptibility to infection in the first place and likely to make it worse and then results in higher blood concentrations of inflammatory mediators and a chronic state of low level infection uh, or inflammation rather that is really health destroying. It leads to more susceptibility to severe COVID-19 and mortality than healthy weight adults. A systematic review, meta-analysis of 22 studies, obesity was associated with more severe COVID symptoms, higher risk of hospitalization, higher risk of admission to ICU, higher risk of ventilation, higher risk of acute respiratory distress syndrome. Obesity results in the chronic state of inflammation, which I've mentioned a couple of times, is a really bad state of health to be in. Obese people have delayed and diminished antiviral responses, hence more likely to have severe flu. They have poor recovery because the, the, the inflammation is persistent. All the immune function is going to unproductive activity, right? Obesity changes the viral life cycle, it increases it, makes it longer. Obese people shed virus longer than leaner people, so they tend to infect people around them. And they have internal terrain more likely to produce more viral mutations which perpetuate their illness. Weight loss lowers inflammatory markers. And even the composition of individual meals will affect inflammation. High fat meals can increase postprandial inflammation. Inflammation increases even more if the meal contains high amounts of advanced glycation end products or AGEs. And that effect is amplified in people who are obese or have type two diabetes. So now if you knew people who got really, really sick between 2020 and now, you may be starting to put the pieces together. 
the effect can be mitigated by eating high antioxidant foods like whole grains and vegetables. I mean, I think everybody here knows the right foods to eat. It's just the difficulty in making the shift. But you can see here on the left side, we have the high AGE foods. And on the right side, you can see the difference. Okay, not much in sweet potatoes, celery, cucumbers, tomatoes. And again, the things you already know, even in some minimally processed foods, like an Amy's veggie burger, you don't have much AGE there, as opposed to bacon, 91,577 um, uh, AGEs per 100 grams. The activated immune system increases the demand for energy. The basal metabolic rate increases during fever. And it's one of the reasons why you lose weight. And it's not a crisis. By the way, people become apoplectic. Even I've seen this during cancer treatment, when people have the flu, colds, whatever, people become apoplectic about weight loss. I'm, I'm pretty lean, but believe me, if I lost 10 pounds because I had the flu and I let the fever go on so that I could get over it, I can regain the 10 pounds, right? It's the chronic health issues that come from trying to constantly suppress fevers and, and um, uh, try to make people eat when they're too sick to eat and that sort of thing. It's, it's ridiculous. We're so, in a country of people who are mostly overweight or obese, this focus on weight loss being a crisis if you're sick is really kind of hard to, diffi very difficult to understand. Um, some micronutrients, by the way, have specific roles in immune function. So I'll show you a study about arginine uh, toward the end of this in a little bit here, but arginine stimulates the production of nitric oxide by macrophages that keeps your blood vessels open. Vitamin A and zinc regulate cell division, antioxidants like vitamin C and antioxidant enzymes like superoxide dismutase and glutathione address ROS or reactive oxygen species, which are generated by infection. Nutrients in plant foods contribute to several functions related to immunity, the development and maintenance of physical barriers, the production of an increased activity of antimicrobial proteins, growth, differentiation, and motility of your innate immune cells, phagocytic and killing activities of neutrophils and macrophages, and promotion of and recovery from inflammation. So it, the, the outcomes when you get sick are so different if you keep yourself in a great state of health, starting with what you put in your mouth every day. And by the way, when people tell me that it can't be that important, the average adult eats one ton, one ton of food every year. Think about what that would look like stacked on the street in front of your house. How can you argue that that would not make a difference? Of course it does. We even have specific research on plant-based diets in COVID-19. A study including 2,884 frontline healthcare workers from six countries who had ex extensive exposure. They were around patients all the time. Participants who followed plant-based diets had a 73% lower risk of moderate to severe COVID-19. Participants who followed a pescatarian diet, and it's, it's not as good, but better than normal, had a 59% lower risk. Participants who followed low-carb, high-protein diets have a higher risk of severe disease. So you start piling on all of this, you know, you're overweight, chronic inflammation, your gut microbiome's been destroyed, you're dehydrated, you eat a terrible diet. No wonder people got very, very sick, right? Research at Johns Hopkins Children's Center, they took sulforaphane, which is a phytochemical in broccoli and cruciferous vegetables, has a really powerful effect against viruses like the common cold and SARS-CoV-2. They expose cells to sulforaphane for one to two hours before infecting them uh, with COVID-2 and um, of the virus causing the common cold. The sulforaphane reduced viral replication of six strains of SARS-CoV-2, including Delta and Omicron by 50%. 
And the same was the, the effect was the same for the common cold. Giving 30 milligrams of sulforaphane per kilogram of body weight to mice before infecting them with SARS-CoV-2 decreased the loss of body weight, which is typically associated um, with COVID-19. And by the way, in really, really lean people or already compromised you know, people who are sick, that may, might make a huge difference. Pre-treatment with sulforaphane also decreased viral load in the lungs and upper respiratory tract and resulted in a 29% decrease in injury to lung tissue. So can you imagine what would happen if you ate cruciferous vegetables as a regular part of your diet? Go figure, right? And it's not, you know, and it doesn't matter which ones, by the way. So if you say, I hate broccoli, then eat different cruciferous vegetables. This is not contingent on any particular food as much as getting the pattern, right? And of course, rather than taking sulforaphane pills, whole foods are better. So broccoli, arugula, bok choy, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, and they contain other things besides just sulforaphane. So you really want the nutrients all packaged up in the whole food. So inflammation was a big characteristic of severe COVID-19. It increases the risk of cytokine storm. Often supplemental antioxidants and omega-3 fatty acids are recommended to address. And a Cochrane review basically said that there was no effect of omega-3 fatty acids and antioxidants on uh, SARS-CoV-2, not the duration or the propensity to end up on ventilators. Um, there is some increased risk of cardiac, GI, and total adverse events. Consumption of Western calorically rich diet is associated with a chronic state of inflammation and the high intake of saturated fat sugar and refined carbohydrate also. So, so the, the answer to this is not going on about your business, just continuing to do what you're doing if you're overweight and eating a bad diet and think that if something bad happens, you'll just pop some omega-3 fatty acid and antioxidant pills, or you'll take them every day as a way to um, reduce your risk. That's going to solve your problem. The key is get yourself healthy now. It will serve you well in the future. Saturated fat is particularly worth talking about. Um, dietary fats alter the membranes of immune cells and can interfere with immune function. Saturated fat has a particularly deleterious effect. And so you, your toll-like receptors are your first line weapons of the immune system against infection. And they're down-regulated within hours of just um, ingesting a bolus of saturated fat. So it's very distressing to watch the popularity of these ketogenic diets right now. Um, they have their role for epileptic children, they have their role for brain cancer patients, but the general public should not be consuming such a diet. Saturated fat also expresses, increases the expression of a COX-2 enzyme, which increases inflammation. Saturated and unsaturated fatty acids when consumed in excess will increase inflammation and decrease your immune function. Omega-6 and polyunsaturated fat has the same effect on the toll-like receptors and are precursors to inflammatory molecules. They have pro-inflammatory. So this is why a low-fat diet, not a change-the-type-of-fat diet, is what I have recommended for years. And of course, when you reduce the fat and increase the fiber, things get better as well. The Finnish Diabetes Prevention Study, an increase in fiber intake was associated with a reduction in inflammatory molecules. And, um, and by the way, this becomes important because if you can lower your general inflammation levels, you will be less likely to get sick. In other words, who was the most likely to become ill with COVID? It was overweight, hypertensive, diabetic, or all three combined. High fiber intake 
results in lower body weight, which reduces obesity-related inflammation. The interaction between fiber and the bacteria and the gut microbiome will also result in lower inflammation. Your beneficial bacteria in the gut really like fiber. They feast on it and they produce anti-inflammatory molecules and that's helpful. Okay, so I have to tell you, chicken soup is an old wives tale. Well, it's actually been shown to have an anti-inflammatory effect, but it may be less about the chicken and more about the vegetables in the soup. So you could have um, vegetable broth with vegetables in it and probably have the same effect. Um, hydration is important. Most people are dehydrated to start with, and then they get sick with something like the flu, and that may um, cause them to become even more dehydrated because of fever, vomiting, or diarrhea. And you have to be very careful to avoid diuretic-inducing beverages like coffee, tea, colas, that sort of thing. Drinking fluids will actually help to reduce discomfort. It will help move waste out of the body. And it's sometimes the reason why people have a headache, even when they're not sick, is because they're dehydrated. Uh, by the way, when the body's dehydrated, histamine production increases, which it leads to increased mucus, the allergic um, uh, response uh, of your immune system. Uh, and by the way, when people are really sick, uh, a lot of times just water, juices, and vegetable broth are well tolerated. Sometimes a smoothie would be okay. Uh, but again, some weight loss is normal, and I, I, I'm less concerned about that than I am just the person not having to be hospitalized. All right, so the first, first person who said all disease begins in the gut was Hippocrates. So it's not like we haven't known about it for a long time. He, was, um, he's, he lived a long, long time ago. So I'll be real specific about gut microbiome and immune function and SARS-CoV-2. Uh, we are colonized as humans by enormous numbers of microbes. We call them the commensal microbiota. Most of them are in the gastrointestinal tract, but we've got bacteria. We live in a soupy mess of bacteria. In fact, there's more bacterial and viral cells than there are human cells involved in the creation of a human being. These commensal cells play a huge role in the development and function of the immune system through signaling. They don't generally leave the, the gut, for example, but again, I'll compare to the thermostat. The thermostat's in my living room and the furnace is downstairs, but it's the regulatory system, right? So if you end up disrupting this um, microbiota because you take antibiotics and you've never repaired it, or because you eat a terrible diet that preferentially feeds the pathogen, you're more susceptible to ill health. The adaptive immune system in the intestine is regulated by this bacteria. So all that elaborate explanation I gave you before about the adaptive immune system creating molecules that are specific to the pathogens, all of that gets interrupted if you mess up your gut microbiome. The commensal bacteria network with immune cells throughout the body. And antibiotic-treated mice shows severe bronchial epithelial degeneration and increased risk of death after infection with influenza virus. And by the way, I'm not telling you not to take an antibiotic if you have a severe um, bacterial infection, but they are so overprescribed. I could do another two-hour lecture just on the overprescribing of antibiotics. They're good when you need them, but we are really, really overusing them. If you do have to take an antibiotic, and we've all had, most people my age have had to do it a couple of times, then you, um, uh, you restore your microbiome with probiotics. The gut microbiome is protective against respiratory infections. Depletion or lack of commensal bacteria in mice diminishes the immune response and worsens outcomes. And a review of 49 studies show that commensal bacteria are involved in response to local and systemic infections, right? 
So this is something you can do and fix before, do something about and fix before flu season. The solution, probiotics, shown to enhance innate immunity, especially phagocytosis and natural killer cells. Individuals taking probiotics have improved response to vaccinations when they get them. And probiotics have been shown to increase antibody response to vaccination for seasonal um, flu in adults. A meta-analysis of 20 randomized controlled trials. Taking probiotics reduced the number of days of illness, fewer days absent from daycare, school, or work. A Cochrane review, probiotics were better than placebo in preventing acute upper respiratory infections and reducing antibiotic use. A review of 14 randomized controlled trials, prophylactic use of probiotics reduced the incidence and, um, and duration of your, uh, uh, upper respiratory tract infections in healthy children. A meta-analysis of 23 trials, over 6,200 kids aged newborn to 18 years, probiotics significantly reduced the incidence of respiratory tract infection. They had fewer number of days with RTI than those taking placebo and fewer missed days from daycare, daycare or school. Um, damage to the gut microbiome, especially lower levels of lactobacilli and bifidobacteria found in 19 patients. That would lead to higher concentration of opportunistic pathogens, which persisted after resolution of COVID-19. You've heard of long COVID. A person who's compromised and then gets COVID can end up with long COVID because the original problem's never been fixed, right? Um, concentration of pathogens was associated with COVID-19 severity, and concentration of commensals was associated, the good bacteria associated with less severe COVID-19. This is how you explain why some people, um, I am positive that I must have been infected with COVID at some point. I never stop being around people in just flu season, you're infected, you know, most of us get exposed to everything. No symptoms, why? Well, because I've spent the last 30 years of my life really focusing on my health, which doesn't guarantee I'm never gonna get sick, but it does guarantee it's going to be less likely and it's going to be less impactful if I do. A study published in April of 2020, 20% of patients with confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection had gastrointestinal symptoms. Two-thirds shed viral DNA and uh, RNA in their feces. Over 60% of patients continued to shed RNA in their feces even after a PCR test showed negative. Patients with dysbiosis have worse outcomes and longer recovery times from COVID-19 than those have, who have healthier microbiomes, but you can expand it beyond just COVID. It's the topic of the moment, but any viral infection. Researchers in Hong Kong analyzed the microbiomes of 15 patients who tested positive. They examined two to three fecal samples each week until the patients were discharged from the hospital. At that time, anybody who tested positive was hospitalized. All the patients had increased levels of pathogenic bacteria and reduced levels of beneficial bacteria as compared to healthy controls. Those who were treated with antibiotics were in even worse shape. The degree of dysbiosis was directly related to the severity of symptoms, all right? So the condition of your microbiome is directly related to your propensity to get disease, how severe it's gonna be, how well you're gonna recover. A study of 100 patients uh, confirmed what I just showed you, also reported that higher levels of pathogens were associated with higher levels of inflammatory cytokines. Follow-up with these patients showed a link between a damaged gut microbiome and persistent symptoms, sometimes referred to as long COVID. On the other hand, people who completely recovered had a microbiome similar to people who were never infected, right? 
it just the the evidence adds up and adds up. Here's another thing. SARS-CoV-2 has an affinity for ACE2 receptors, which are found throughout the human body, including in the mucosal lining of the human gut, which tells you the connection between what I'm saying here. ACE2 receptors play a role in regulating the microbiome and infection interferes with the regulatory system. Dysbiosis can increase the risk of symptomatic infection and that can exacerbate the dysbiosis. So you get this like negative feedback loop from hell where it just gets worse and worse and worse unless you do something to turn it around and bring it back the other, other direction. So the same research group analyzed 101 stool samples from hu human COVID-19 patients. The samples showed significant dysbiosis with blooms of opportunistic pathogenic bacteria and antibiotic resistant bacteria in those who were hospitalized. So you take a look at who gets sick and how sick they get and what are your risk factors and how can you fix them, which is the message I'm trying to give you here. And this goes back to what I said before, everybody knows right now, everybody knows people who are diabetic, obese, high blood pressure, at higher risk of COVID, and they are also more likely to have compromised gut microbiomes in part because the drugs they take and the diets they eat to get into this condition mess up the gut microbiome. So if infected and with symptoms, taking a probiotic during illness may actually be helpful. A pilot study involving 25 COVID patients given probiotics showed that they had lower, uh, higher levels of beneficial bacteria, lower levels of inflammatory markers, more likely to recover fully than 30 controls who were given the usual care with no probiotics. And of course, change the diet. Because even if you take probiotics, if you're going to continue to preferentially feed the pathogens with protein and fat instead of fiber and carbohydrate, you're not going to have long-lasting health. Patients treated for COVID with a combination of drugs or the same drugs plus probiotics, they all had fever, they all required non-invasive oxygen, they all had lung involvement. The two groups were comparable in age, sex, lab values, comorbidities, mode of oxygen support. Within 72 hours, almost all patients treated with probiotics have relief from diarrhea less than half of the non-probiotic group. The risk of respiratory failure was eightfold lower in patients taking probiotics. And nobody's talking about this, but it's something that you can do. These are over-the-counter products that you can purchase. You don't even need a prescription, right? So just a little word about supplements to finish this up here, and then I'll be happy to take some questions. So um, Dr. Zelenko's home treatment for COVID-19 is worth um, considering. Um, obviously, with severe illness, this may not be the great idea, but I'll just mention it here. You can buy it online. It does not require a prescription. Arginine for COVID-19. This is a very interesting study that was performed in Italy. Endothelium is a target for SARS-CoV-2 because of the ACE2 receptors. A double-blind um, arginine has been shown to improve endothelial function. And by the way, you can consume it in foods, so you don't have to take it supplementally. supplementally. However, in this particular case, a double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial, patients hospitalized with severe COVID-19 in Italy, 101 patients at 10 days, 71.1% in the arginine group had respiratory uh, symptoms reduced, 44% in the placebo arm. And the difference in hospital stays was highly significant, right? So um, I don't normally recommend that people take arginine on a daily basis because I think that you can keep your endothelial tissue in really great shape by eating a great diet and um, staying hydrated, taking good care of yourself. But again, in the event of 
a, a respiratory illness of any type, including COVID-19, but not limited to that, um, you, can, uh, you can use arginine perhaps as a helper. Green tea, second most consumed beverage worldwide after water. It's the main beverage in countries like China and Japan. And all tea is derived from the leaves of the same plant. Mainly it's grown in China and Southeast Asia. But the type of tea, like white tea, green tea, black tea, is based on levels of oxidation and processing. White tea refers to the unopened buds found on the topmost part of the tea plant. And um, they, it's a process called withering. They take the moisture out under direct sunlight and drying, it finishes it up. Um, some claim the antioxidant value is higher, but it's really not yet ripe. So it's sort of like eating unripe vegetables, unripe tomatoes. You really want them vine ripened, right? Green tea is more ripe. It's harvested after the buds are open. It's dried and should retain its green color if it's really high quality stuff. Oolong is fresh leaves that stand for about an hour before they're heat treated. And it's an intermediate stage of oxidation between the green and the black tea. And then black tea is highly processed and oxidized. And the only reason I'm going through this little tea primer here is that if you were to decide to consume green tea on a regular basis or in response to being sick, you wanna make sure it's really, really good, high quality green, green tea. It's not this, it's not black tea and white tea, it's, it's green tea that is known to have the effect. And where the effect comes from is polyphenols, which um, uh, they're also known as catechins. They, they're, they're antioxidants in green tea that have anti-tumor, antioxidant, antimicrobial activities. And EGCG is one of the five types of catechins, which compromises, comprises about 59% uh, of the total polyphenols in green tea leaves. It's the main active constituent. And then there are several others as well. But here's what the real important part is here. Catechins are the flavonoids in green tea. And in a study in Japan, 2,273 healthcare workers were randomized to consume a drink containing uh, you know, catechins, EGCG, or a smaller amount of five other catechins a day, or three times a day, or placebo. And uh, the high dose group was equipped, if you wanted to put it in equivalent terms, they were getting the equivalent of like a cup of green tea every day. And the incidence of acute infections was 26.7% in the placebo group, 29.2% in the low-dose group, and 13.1% in the high-dose green tea group. And that's, that's profound. It's, it's like 50% reduction. Um, so I want to be crystal clear here. It, it, I'm not proposing that green tea has magical properties. And if you stay overweight and hypertensive and diabetic and you eat a keto diet, all you got to do is just well, I'll, I'll even take more green tea. I'll have three cups instead of one cup and I'll just reverse all of that. I'm not saying that. I think it's a combination of things that you do to build health. And this is one of those tools in the combination. Like when I was talking about food as medicine and looking at it as you know, the, the grocery store is the drug store. Um, this is one of the drugs I use on a regular basis. I don't take any drugs unless I absolutely have to, but uh, this is one of the, healthy drugs I take every day. Uh, green tea catechins have demonstrated antiviral effects on all kinds of human viruses, all of them, right? And here are the references. So again, it's not magical stuff. You can't keep doing all the rest of the bad things that you do and just hope this will rescue you. But the more good things you do, the healthier you get. And I don't know about you, but um, with few limitations, I'm willing to spend a lot of effort building my health every day so that I don't have to spend a lot of effort dealing with the not building my health every day. 
And um, just a comment I'll make, this this comes up all the time in my line of work. People will just, you know, it's like, Pam, the stuff that you do takes time. It takes less time than you might imagine once you have your whole life set up to do it. I mean, I do exercise almost every day. I eat optimal food. I batch cook every week. I stay hydrated, sitting here with my glass of water. Um, and I, I make sure that I, sl I sleep like a baby because I wear myself out. And I have a great life. I really have had the privilege of living a spectacular life. Um, but, but the point is, when people tell me they don't have time to do what I'm doing, I, I ask them, how are you going to have time to be sick? Because the, the people who have cancer that I work with, they don't have time to do anything but that. I don't know about you. I'd rather spend less amount of time every day doing what I do so that I'm not sick all the time and something serious doesn't happen, or at least I reduce my risk as much as possible than I would to uh, you know, avoid all of this time and energy that I put into it now. And then it becomes full-time job just to survive later. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. All right, a study of 2,663 school children in Japan, one to five cups of green tea per day reduced influenza infection. Randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study of healthy adults 18 to 70 years of age. The subjects were randomized to take green tea capsules versus placebo. The intervention group, 32.1% uh, fewer subjects with symptoms, 22.9% fewer overall illnesses, 35.6% fewer symptom days compared to placebo. Personally, I don't think green tea capsules is what you want. I think you want the actual leaves themselves. I actually put the leaves in my smoothie every day. In vitro studies, which aren't really as good as human studies, I've shown you some of those, but they show the same thing. Uh, green tea extracts inactivate SARS-CoV-2 in vitro in a dose-dependent manner. And so the more healthy things you do, the healthier you get, the less likely you are to get disease, and the more likely you are to recover quickly if you have it. You cannot go through life thinking that you're somehow going to avoid getting sick. And remember what I said earlier, we've, we, we should not get panicked about children getting sick. They will have no immune system developed if we try to keep them from getting sick, right? And, um, and there is no such thing as a human body that goes through life without ever getting a cold or something. But what you wanna do is make it a non-event. That's the key. You wanna make sickness rare and uneventful when and if it happens. All right, so this is really interesting. Um, it, it, there are very few supplements that we have great studies on. Green tea happens to be one of them, by the way. Um, and it's a food, not necessarily a supplement. But elderberry is one of them. First of all, historically, it's been used for a long time. Elderberry has been used for centuries um, for a lot of different things. The Native Americans used it for fever and rheumatism. It's also been used to treat stomach aches, sinus congestion, constipation, diarrhea, sore throat, and the common cold. It's considered one of Germany's most important medicinal plants. And the only reason I mention that is that um, the German government made a decision many years ago to not endorse just one system of medicine like we do here in the United States. It's just all allopathic medicine and everything else is kind of marginalized or even disallowed. Uh, but uh, Germany, it, it's highly prescribed there and it's used in Ayurvedic medicine as well. One of the reasons we have good data on elderberry is that an Israeli company actually patented an elderberry product many, many years ago. It's called Sambacol. Um, you can buy elderberry products um, in a lot of different places, though, and we're really lucky here in uh, Columbus because um, Trisha's Elderberries, which is a nationally known brand, 
um, is located here in Columbus and we were really happy to incubate her. We allowed uh, her to use our kitchen for a period of time until she had her own. And um, so we got introduced to elderberry. We carry it in our store. But in any case, meta-analysis of four randomized trials with 180 patients, black elderberry was effective for colds and flu, reducing upper respiratory systems, uh, symptoms. Test tube studies, standardized elderberry extract has been shown to reduce replication of human influenza viruses type A and B and H1N1. Double-blind placebo-controlled study of residents of a kibbutz during an outbreak of flu, Zambacol, significantly better than placebo. Fever improved in 93.3% of subjects taking Zambacol in two days in the control group. It was six days, right? And so um, within two to three days, almost 90% of those taking Zambacol, that's the product that was patented initially, uh, achieved complete cure. It took six days in the placebo group. That's a significant difference. So it's um, one of the few things that I have. I'm not, I, I, I really think that we've got to get people eating food, not necessarily taking supplements all the time instead of eating good food. And it's one of the few things that I have in my medicine cabinet all the time. Now, um, now we're going to like go to the land of controversy because everybody knows vitamin D is swell and you ought to take it, but I have not, I've not seen the evidence of that. And so I'm going to talk about it a little bit because it's being talked about as something particularly, it's accelerated during the last three years, something everybody should be taking. Vitamin D is measured with a blood test and um, it's, you know, it's produced via sun exposure or consumed in foods and supplements fortified foods and supplements. It does not naturally occur in food. According to the Institute of Medicine, it's not clear that mark, blood markers are a marker for health status at all, or the increased levels are a measurement of health improvement. And the other thing is that we have gotten into this very bad habit, in my opinion, of measuring plasma levels of vitamin D without any consideration for the fact that it's stored in the fat tissue and um, vitamin D is not a vitamin, it's actually a hormone. Um, and this is an important thing. The, the medical definition of a vitamin is something that your body cannot produce and it must be consumed in food. And so um, uh, you know, your body produces vitamin D in response to sunlight and it's not in food. So this is kind of a bizarre perversion of what we know that's um, caught on like a whole lot of other things in healthcare. The error rate for testing is really high that in favor of overdiagnosing uh, deficiency, the lab tests don't measure vitamin D binding protein, which can vary significantly. And also the tests do not account, when you look at all these studies about deficiency, you've got inflated biomarkers or reference ranges, and you also have no consideration for the time of day. And vitamin D levels fluctuate predictably throughout the day. So without knowing they're higher at some points and lower at sometimes at some points. So when you start reading these studies, I want you to keep in mind that that's not been accounted for most of the time. And this is an example here. This is a case report. There are a lot of these, but, and the reason I use it, it's a weak form of evidence, but it makes a specific point that I wanna make here. And that is that um, time of day that the sample is drawn affects outcomes. So here's a healthy woman in her 40s taking 5,000 international units of vitamin D daily at midday for over a year, which is mild compared to the horse-like doses that are being prescribed now. Her plasma levels got to 60. She lived in California, got a little bit of sun every day in the morning and little vitamin D intake from any other source. Her plasma levels were tested three times a day. And at midday, they were lower than in the morning and 13% lower than at night. 
Her vitamin D levels fell by 25% the day before she contracted a cold, in spite of the fact that she never stopped taking the supplement. It was consistent with what we know really is going on, which is reverse causation. I'll talk about that in a minute. Without any change in her dose, her levels returned to baseline two weeks later after she recovered from the cold. The case report confirms previous studies showing that lower levels of vitamin D are a consequence, not a cause of disease. It confirms other studies showing that the time of day matters, but it is not accounted for in these studies. And it shows that supplementation has little to do with status. Taking the supplement didn't prevent the cold. Taking vitamin D while the patient had a cold made no difference and the levels didn't increase to normal. They just went back to normal without any intervention in two weeks because the intervention never changed. Um, so reverse causation, I'll just talk about this for a minute. There's a connection between low vitamin D levels and disease. And people have inaccurately reported that to mean that lower levels of vitamin D cause disease. Well, an association should never be confused for a, 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 a cause and effect relationship. It's just not the same. And, um, and as, I'll give you an association. In countries where more women are getting driver's licenses, the breast cancer rate's going up. Well, I guess if we're going to use association, we should start taking driver's licenses away from women. I don't know many women who would consent to that, but that would make sense if we're going to use uh, association. All right. The, the problem is that intervention studies and prospective studies where vitamin D has been used have simply shown no benefit in general. And I'm going to show you what I mean by no benefit. People jump on me when I say this. Raising your plasma levels is not a benefit. Pretty blood work is not the objective of health. It's better health, it's lower risk of disease or recovery from disease, et cetera. All right, so, but, but we do see lots of evidence of reverse causation. I just showed it to you. Another example that I'll talk about is that um, uh, patients admitted to, who arrived at an emergency room in a hyperglycemic state, um, uh, where their plasma levels of vitamin D when they arrived were 12.3. And as soon as their glucose stabilized, they went up in a matter of hours, went up to over 28. So it was the disease causing the low vitamin D levels, not low vitamin D causing the disease. So this is a very convoluted, crazy thing that has happened. It's a billion dollar industry based on this false premise. All right, so let's look at studies cited by advocates. All right. And I, I look them up and I read what they say. All right. So here's the first one. 4,628 people with vitamin D status measured a year before COVID testing. The risk of positive tests for Black people was 2.64 times greater with vitamin D uh, the, of uh, 40 or more than um, or, or 39.9 than 40 or more. The issues are, first of all, it's observation, no cause and effect relationship established. And there's so many things that could have to do with this besides vitamin D. A study in Northern Italy, retrospective analysis of vitamin D levels for 347 patients admitted to the hospital with suspected COVID-19, 128 tested positive, 219 negative. Average vitamin D levels were the same in both groups. Also the percentage with D levels under a threshold, same in both groups. And so here's the conclusion. These are studies that advocates say show that you need vitamin D because a large portion of patients were below the suggested 30 nanograms. We can't exclude that vitamin D supplementation restoring normal levels might be beneficial in reducing the risk of infection. And notice that at this point in time, they were saying 30 is the threshold. Most reference ranges are, are up to 50 to 100. Pretty soon it's going to be 500 to 1,000, and you should be taking a bath and stuff. I mean, it, it, the, the trend is incredibly alarming to me 
mainly because it's a hormone and it's stored in the fat tissue and the reference ranges keep going up and the doses keep going up with weak evidence like this to support it. Here's another one, a review article. This narrative review aims at collecting the literature available on the involvement of vitamin D status and the pathogenesis of COVID-19, all right? It emerges that, and this is, again, I want you to pay attention to the language, that a poor vitamin D status seems to associate with an increased risk of infection, whereas age, gender, and comorbidities seem to play a more important role. Vitamin D supplementation may be useful. Now, you're an advocate for vitamin D. You're telling people they all need to take it to stay healthy, and particularly if you want to avoid SARS-CoV-2 or recover. If this is the most convincing stuff you can put in front of me, I'm not. I'm not. Um, I'm just not convinced. Um, another study: hospital data for 235 patients with COVID-19. 74% had severe infection. 32.8% vitamin D deficient, based on the inflated numbers that we'll talk about if you want. A significant association between vitamin D sufficiency and reduction in clinical severity, inpatient mortality, serum levels, or C-reactive protein, and an increase in lymphocyte percentage. And then this significant reduction suggests that vitamin D sufficiency also may help modulate. You see all the qualifying language, all right? And by the way, if you, um, if you want to take vitamin D, all great. I just think I'm an, I'm an advocate for informed consent and too many people are doing things every day or sporadically. They have no idea what they're doing, why they're doing it, or if it has any effect. Here's another one. We cannot explain, this is cited by advocates, all right? We cannot explain the cause and effect relationship of vitamin D sufficiency and the reduced risk of severity from a COVID-19 infection. If, if you can't identify a mechanism of action, that needs to be disclosed. We have no idea. Here's what the summary so far, what I've shown you. We don't know if it works. We don't know why it works, if it works, but y'all ought to take it because it's swell stuff. So the studies are focused on observation that people with COVID-19 have lower levels of vitamin D. Well, people with many conditions have lower levels. The reverse causation, remember the woman with the cold I showed you, no accounting for the limitation of testing methods used and most likely due to reverse causation. People with lower levels of vitamin D have lower levels, um, uh, you know, are sick who have lower levels of vitamin D are because they are sick, it's reverse causation. So the last supplement, I think it's the last one that I'll cover is zinc. It's an important uh, nutrient. Um, cellular metabolism is the process by which cells grow and reproduce and differentiate. It enables the activity of hundreds of enzymes. It increases the response rate of immune cells. It can directly fight some viruses. Zinc deficiency is reported to be common in elderly people and those with chronic illness. And it has a known effect on taste and smell. A Cochrane review, 16 intervention trials, two preventive trials. Taking zinc within 24 hours of onset of symptoms reduces duration of symptoms in healthy people. It didn't reduce severity of symptoms. Risk of developing a cold reduced. Prescribing of antibiotics was lower in the zinc group. Side effects, bad taste and nausea. But high heterogeneity means that average estimates must be viewed with caution. So this study showed some positive results, but the researchers were quick to say that um, these estimates must, must be observed with caution. And by the way, you can never use one study to justify doing something anyway. A review of 14 studies, four out of 14 met all criteria established by the researcher. 
and three out of four showed no benefit. One showed a slight benefit with nasal gel. The remaining 10 studies, six reported benefit. The authors commented that zinc research is inadequate and more research is needed. How zinc may improve outcomes for SARS-CoV-2. It may decrease activity of the ACE2, which is a known receptor for SARS-CoV-2. Notice the qualifying language may. May upregulate interferon of production, uh, A production and increase antiviral activity has anti-inflammatory activity, may modulate T-cell activity, which can limit cytokine storm more common in COVID, and has an antibacterial effect. So notice the qualifying language. A study of 242 hospitalized COVID-19 patients, 81% received supplemental zinc, the daily dose, 440 milligrams. There was no relationship between zinc and survival. And the authors said, even this, you have to be cautious because the sample size was small and there were a lot of confounding factors. And that's one of the problems you see, by the way, in the vitamin D studies is there's no accounting for, uh, for uh, confounding factors in, in a vast majority of, of the studies. Literature review, zinc and viral infections. Zinc supplementation improves mucociliary clearance, strengthens uh, epithelial um, uh, uh, epithelial integrity, decreases viral replication, promotes antiviral immunity, regulates inflation, inflammation, has antioxidant effects. It can reduce lung damage, minimize secondary infections. High-risk patients for COVID, like the elderly and people with chronic disease, might benefit. It is inexpensive and it has few side effects. I would add the caution. This is not instead of doing everything else that we talked about here. The, the likelihood that a diabetic, overweight, hypertensive person who's 80 years old and bedridden is going to fix it with zinc is about zero. And we just have to recognize that. A study of 191 patients in Egypt, 96 received HCQ with zinc, 95 HCQ only. And the recovery rate was about the same. So it's said that zinc is an ionophore that gets um, drugs into the cell, doesn't appear to make that much of a difference. 214 COVID patients outside the hospital, average age 45, four groups, 50 milligrams, 8,000 milligram of uh, zinc gluconate, uh, 8,000 milligrams of ascorbic acid, both are standard of care. Standard of care, 50% symptom reduction, an average of 6.7 days. It was 5.5 days for ascorbic acid or vitamin C, 5.9 days for zinc, 5.5 days for both. It was not statistically significant. So I would say if we're looking at the preponderance of the evidence, it's actually not very convincing. A New York study, 3,473 patients, average age 64 with COVID diagnosed with PCR test, 522 patients vented, 545 of them died, 545 died. 29% um, received zinc plus ionophere, 24% uh, uh, reduction in the risk of dying in the hospital. More patients were discharged to home care with zinc. And, and so again, what this may be saying, and, and I'm willing to acknowledge this, is that there is a small percentage of people who may benefit from zinc. There is a tiny subset of patients that may benefit from vitamin D the problem I have with a lot of this is it soon turns into everybody and always instead of small subpopulation and sometimes, right? So uh, I've, I've often said, you know, when I talk about cancer, people are often shocked to find out that I sometimes agree with a patient's uh, determined decision to get chemotherapy. They say, well, what kind of naturopath are you? 
I'm an evidence-based naturopath and sometimes chemotherapy makes sense. It's the stupid use of it that is a problem. And it's the end, you know, the use of it without anything else that is the problem. So I guess what I'm saying here is the stupid and broad use of these supplements and the broad recommendation of these supplements um, is very problematic in my opinion. And another thing I'll say before I finish up here is that the, the supplements you have to be the most careful of are the ones that work because here's what we know. Any substance that you take in that works, there will be a side effect. If there's an effect, there's a side effect. And the fact that it hasn't well been well studied and we don't know all the side effects doesn't mean that there isn't something lurking there. I mean, medicine is full of, of a long history of doing things that turned out to be a really bad idea. Um, didn't know going in, throw caution to the wind and um, turned out to be a very bad idea. So I, I err on the side of caution, which makes me an outlier in my field. A literature review, indirect evidence suggests that zinc may potentially reduce the risk duration and severity of SARS-CoV-2 infection, particularly at popu uh, for populations at risk of zinc deficiency. But I promise you, if you spend some time this afternoon looking for even case reports for zinc deficiency, you will be you will spend all afternoon not find very much direct evidence is pending. So again, it's just not very convincing. Cohort of 249 hospitalized patients, lower levels of zinc were correlated with higher inflammatory response. Patients with higher serum levels had shorter time to recover. So again, I think that there may be subpopulations of people who benefit from this. I'm cautioning against the everybody prescri uh, prescription. So just to summarize, I wanna to get to your questions and turn this into a discussion because I've sure given you a boatload of information here. Health promoting habits increase immune function. Healthy people neutralize viruses and bacteria most of the time without assistance. Conversely, unhealthy people are more likely to get sick, more likely to remain sick longer, have severe systems, uh, symptoms and require intervention. So what you wanna do is you want to put yourself in a position where you're less likely to get sick. You're, if you do get sick, it's a non-event and you're quickly back on your feet, back to normal, and, um, uh, and, 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 and then live your full life as an independent person. That's my goal. I want, if, I'm a, if I have the good fortune, I hope I do, because I have a lot of stuff I want to accomplish in life to live to be 100, I want to do it living on my own and being productive until the very end. And that only comes with gaining some knowledge about how your body works, gaining some confidence in your body's ability to um, uh, maintain and fix itself and, um, and adopting and maintaining really, really good habits. So I am happy to take questions from you guys now. So right. I'll let you uh, moderate from this point, okay? I, I very much appreciate that. Thank you so much for that extremely uh, comprehensive uh, um, presentation. So um, just for the audience sake, uh, actually, do you want to let people know wh where they can find you online yeah. and uh, where they can find your books? Sure. Um, my company's website is wellnessforumhealth.com. My email address is pampopper at msn.com. I do answer my emails if you send me one. Um, I put out a newsletter every Monday and I put out free videos. So that, that's free. And I put out free videos uh, Tuesday through Friday. And I also um, uh, have a new healthcare newsletter that I put out every Monday as well. All that's free. 
So we try and we have uh, free classes from time to time. We try to do as much free stuff as we possibly can to get people thinking more about optimal health because the the goal is if you guys would all be healthy, then I would probably have to find something else to do with myself and that would be okay. I've got other things I could spend my time on too. That's great. Thank you for sharing that information. So now we're going to begin the live Q&A session. Um, I'll be asking some questions. The audience will be asking some questions. Uh, for the audience sake, uh, for those um, who aren't familiar with this process, we don't take questions directly from chat. What we do is we ask audience members to raise their hand to do so. You're going to click on the reactions button, second from the right at the bottom of the Zoom window, and then you'll select the raise hand function within the menu that pops up. I'll call on you. Just let me let us know where you're from and ask your question. And we just ask that questions are brief and on topic. And with that, I'm going to ask the first question. And, you know, I, I'm 100% sure that you're aware in this, you know, plant-based space that, uh, you know, there's a whole thing about oil and healthy fats versus not healthy fats. Um, what are your thoughts on oil? Should it be avoided? And then how about other, you know, quote, healthy fats like hemp, flax, uh, olives in our diet? And does it cause or prevent disease? Yeah. So the issue isn't healthy fats versus unhealthy fats. It's how much fat. And we don't advocate, and I never have, a fat-free diet. And so I, I think, first of all, when you're talking about flax seeds are great in a smoothie, I have those every day. And I make a wicked chickpea and avocado salad, and um, you'd really like it. <laughs> and so I buy avocados and I put it in there, right? Um, and I and I also make dishes that you know might involve nuts or something of that nature. But where you get into the danger zone, I think on the higher fat foods is when you're going to the grocery store and you buy five avocados and bring them home and say, what am I going to do with these? Well, I'll put some avocado on my toast in the morning, 21 grams of fat per cup, right? And then I'll have some avocado on my salad at noon, and then I'll pour some oil-based dressing on it at 14 grams of fat per tablespoon. And this is why you have this phenomenon of the overweight, chubby plant eater who just has no concept of calorie density, right? So I don't think we have to become fanatical about eliminating all high-fat foods. I think we have to know the place, which is when you're making dishes and that sort of thing. Uh, one thing I'll point out, you know, when I was a kid, this is how old I am. We had a holiday time. Sometimes my mother would put out a bowl of nuts and a nutcracker. Remember that? Are you old enough to remember that? I'm, I'm, yeah. I am. Yeah. Okay. So, so my dad would, would crack open some of those nuts. It was a lot of work. You have about three of them and that's all the time you've got for nut eating, right? So this idea that you buy a big bag and stick your hand in the bag, you know, that's a, that's a, a modern thing that we didn't used to be able to do. As for the oils, again, I don't think that fanaticism is required. I've, I've watched with abject horror while people clutch their chest and claim that a, you know, a little shine on the asparagus in a restaurant is going to kill them. And I think that's ludicrous. But the other side of it is it's very high fat, 14 grams of fat per tablespoon. And in a country of obese and, and overweight people, I don't know that encouraging consumption of that kind of thing is, is a great idea. The other thing is you'll find that I've never had anybody who adopted a lower fat, not fat-free, but lower fat diet, who said, you know what? I really miss all that fat I used to eat. They, that's the, What they really are looking for is good food. If it tastes good, you're not going to miss the oil. Great. Thank you. And do you recommend mammary glands, colonoscopies, or the new, and I hope I'm saying this right, the gallery blood test that detects over 50 types of cancers? Do you recommend the, the, all these tests for early detection of cancer? And what is the outcome of, of detecting these cancers early? 
there is only one early detection test for cancer that works. And the definition of works is that it reduces your risk of dying from the cancer. And that's pap testing for cervical cancer. It's actually effective. We, we uh, are diagnosing abnormalities at earlier and early stages. So people are being overtreated, but it does actually reduce the risk of dying from cervical cancer. The blood tests are disease mongering tools. They're highly inaccurate. And so the, the problem with disease mongering is that you find out, you find a lot of um, inconsequential abnormalities that make people nervous. And they're counting on that because that's how they generate a lot of money. These are, these are marketing tools for centers that, that make a lot of money on this. Um, colonoscopy, we now have a randomized controlled trial. First one, we, we, we recommended this as a standard test without any randomized controlled trials for decades, right? Now we have one. It was well done in Scandinavia, published last fall. Not only does colonoscopy not reduce your risk of dying from colon cancer, it doesn't reduce your risk of getting colon cancer. All that polyp snipping doesn't help you at all, all right? Um, mammograms, the risk that you will be harmed significantly uh, greater than the, than the chance that you will benefit. And by the way, I'm not for rationing any of these things. I'm for informed dis consent. And so I, I don't know if you've ever sat through a mortgage closing. I'm sure you have, like I have, and it takes three hours and they read this and you have to initial and say you understand it and all that and the interest rate could go up and you know property taxes and this new development haven't been set yet and blah, 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 right? There is no requirement. And by the way, a mortgage banker who doesn't do that, if it was systemic, they can go to prison for it. Some of them did, right? Okay, there is no consequence for a physician recommending a test or any procedure or medical treatment for which there is little to no evidence and in not informing the patient before doing it. That's what I want to change before I leave this planet. So it's a long answer to your question, but if, you're one, if you want to lower your risk of cancer, you're not going to do it hanging out with doctors, having every body part tested every so often. You're going to do it by paying attention to how you're living your life. I am reducing my risk of cancer all day long today. I'm drinking water. I had a great breakfast. I'm going to have an equally great lunch and an equally great dinner. The sun is shining. I'm going to go out and work in my yard a little bit. I'm going to get some sun, produce some vitamin D, and I'm going to go for a run tonight. All right. That's how you reduce your risk of cancer. It's not hanging out with doctors, having invasive tests performed. And um, what are your thoughts with regard to um, the, with these genetic tests, for example, the BRCA1 gene, and then people, you know, uh, you know, women prophylactically getting uh, mas mastectomies out of fear of this gene and, and what they're being told is a likelihood that they're going to get cancer? Well, we now have some data going out 10 years, uh, one study on mastectomy, bilateral mastectomy or no mastectomy, and there's a 3% survival advantage. I don't know that most women would have their breasts taken off if they knew that. And by the way, you have an equally higher risk of pancreatic cancer. So maybe you ought to have your pancreas taken out while you're having your breasts taken off and the ovaries taken out. I mean, it, it's it's just another form of profitable butchery, in my opinion. And, uh, and it distracts from what really makes a difference. And uh, it, it, something I want to say here, because everybody has uh, you know, a different risk threshold and that sort of thing. But first of all, we're making false promises to people when we promote these things, because they really think it makes a difference. But the second thing is you can't go through life thinking that the secret to a long life is avoiding illness. Like, what am I going to do today to not get sick? Well, I'll just stay home and be in my basement and see no humans. And I, and, you know, I mean, how, what, what can you do to avoid all risks? So what you have to do is you have to put risk in perspective. 
People say, well, how am I going to feel confident about my health if I don't have a colonoscopy and I don't have a mammogram? Well, I don't know. You know, it, it, it's the same as driving a car. I cannot avoid all accidents unless I stop driving, right? So here's what I do. I have a car that's in good working order. I have insurance. I maintain my car. I fasten my seatbelt and I follow the speed limit and I, I live in a school zone. So I'm really mindful kids all over the place. Right. And I don't drive when it's a sheet of ice out there. And if it's raining so hard, I can't see the street from here. I don't drive. All right. So all that's to be careful. Right. But I cannot help it if a bus runs into broadsides me on the way to the office later this afternoon. Nothing you can do about that. And so sitting around thinking about it all day long, oh, my God, I drive, I could get in an accident. That's that, That's the, the medical profession has uh, profited greatly from um, teaching people to be terrified about their health all the time and think that this constant testing and intervention is what builds health. It doesn't. And uh, one more question before I turn it over to the audience for a few questions. Um, what are the survival rates for different types of cancers and uh, what do we do to reduce the risk of getting cancer? Um, to reduce the risk of getting cancer, pay attention to your diet, your weight. Um, and there's a lot of other stuff too. I recommend reading a book called Radical Remission by Kelly Turner. Uh, she interviewed a thousand people who had terminal diagnoses essentially who survived to find out what they did to survive. And they all reported like all kinds of different things, but all thousand reported the same nine things. And, and those were, they focused on their diet. They followed their intuition. I, I love this part. Their doctors described them as being annoying because they wouldn't follow directions. They believed that they should make their own choices. Um, they did use supplements judiciously. It was not the indiscriminate, everybody takes kind of usage. They felt that having a purpose in life was important social connections were important. They also felt that something was out of whack in their life that caused them to get cancer and they needed to fix that, right? So so I think that, um, I know a lot of people who think that as long as they just watch every morsel that goes in their mouth and never touch salt, that protects them against everything. But, but I think that the biggest protection really is taking great care of yourself, keeping yourself in as good a health as possible and living a great life. You know, um, I, I think my health is attributable as much to my close friends, my community connections, my uh, I, I love what I do. I look forward to every day. Um, animals are a passion of mine. Some of you know, I adopted a new little friend after Schroeder died last year. So Sir Winston lives here now. And that makes me laugh all day long. He's been a very good boy during this, by the way, because I wore him out before we started. <laughs> but but, you know, you have to have laughter and you have to have social connections with people. That's how you avoid cancer. Survival rates. I have seen people who should have survived die. I have seen people who should have been dead live for 20 years. And so there's the definable part of it, eating well, losing weight and all that. And then there's, we call it in our office, the X factor. It's like determination to live. There is such a thing as an expectation effect. And there's a book by that title that we studied in our healthy book club for members. And um, it's astounding how much of what happens to you is dependent on your expectation. And I'm not talking about sit back and wish yourself well. I'm just talking about you get what you expect in life. And people who expect to live often do. People who expect to succeed often do. Um, and so I tell people really, the chatter in your head. Um, I just read a book called A Liberated Mind by Daniel Hayes. 
And uh, I love this line. Step one in, in changing things, put your mind on a leash. I love that statement. And since we, this is another book we studied in our healthy book club. And since then, about 25 times, I have said, Pam, you have got to put your mind on a leash right now because you're going on. I know I do it. Everybody does, right? Bring yourself back. So there's a lot to be said for just making up your mind about how things are going to be. Great, great. All right. So our first audience question is going to come from Dave. Where are you from and what's your question? Hi, thank you for the for presentation, doctor. Uh, I'm Dave from Massachusetts, and I would like to know what is your opinion about omega-3 blood test? Do you think it's legit? Do you think there's, there is enough research to show that if you have a deficiency, you have a problem? And if you think if it is legit, what would you recommend to, um, to mitigate it, either using supplement or control the ratio between omega-3 and 6? Thank you so much. Um, I think that people should stop having testing done unless there's a reason, all right? This is another thing. There's a, a great book called um, uh, uh, Risky, Risky Medicine, written several years ago. It's another one we studied in our book club. And what this doctor talked about is the, the more you test, the more you find. That's how you turn sick people, healthy people into sick patients. And you essentially, you find risk factors and then you treat the person as if the risk factor is actually the disease. That's what happens with mammography, by the way. All right, you find ductal carcinoma in situ, which is the um, risk factor for cancer. It's not cancer, but we're gonna treat it like cancer. I mean, a lot of women have surgery and radiation. And you know, so, so um, I think you, if you don't have a profound reason for having tests done, I would avoid them all. Um, I haven't seen a doctor since 1994. It's a personal choice and not one that I'm necessarily recommending to you, but I, I'm just asking. I'm 119 pounds. I weighed what I weighed when I graduated from high school. I'm 66 years old. When in a pinch, I can run an eight-minute mile. Um, I work out every day. I own a hot yoga studio and teach hot yoga. I work, I'm capable of outworking anybody a third my age. So I'm just wondering, what is what would be the reason for calling a doctor saying, you know what, let's look for something wrong. Let's see if we can find something. And I'm pretty sure at this age, you'd find some abnormality. But the question is, do I benefit from knowing about it? And I'm not sure that I do. Actually, I'm sure that I don't, which is why I'm not doing it. Great. Our next question is coming from Elizabeth. Elizabeth, where are you from and what's your question? Uh, yes, hello. I'm from Canada, Quebec, Canada. <clears throat> I remember reading something a while ago about vitamin D receptors on lymphocytes and that vitamin D was important for immune function. And I, I was trying to find that re that article, but I didn't. And I found another one that was published in 2016 about um, the study revealing an inverse association with a vitamin D levels and inflammation um, with the markers. And that was published in archives of medical science in 2016 so i was wondering if you you knew anything about that the vitamin d and in, immune function co uh, connection yeah and that maybe yeah. that, maybe that was it, uh, uh, why vitamin d was important for for many uh, physicians vitamin d is important for many physicians because they don't know how to read the medical literature all right so that i'm just going to put that out I, I, i'll tell you what i said i was going to be a way to become a curmudgeon until I was 70 and I just never made it. All right. So I just say things like I mean, them, like I think they need to be said. 
vitamin D, nobody on my side of this issue is saying vitamin D isn't important. Everything's important. There isn't a hormone your body produces that you don't need. The question is, do we benefit from all this testing and supplementation? And the answer is an overwhelming no. And so the first thing is vitamin D and inflammation, reverse causation. You're making my point. People with inflammation have lower vitamin D levels. People with COVID have lower vitamin D levels. Cancer, lower, it's reverse causation. You fix the problem, the vitamin D levels come up. We have inflated diagnostic parameters. And this, this reference range situation plagues everything. A lot of people don't realize that we have changed the definition of pre-diabetes, which is a non-existent disease. See, when they, when they ran out of people to give drugs to who had the real disease, they invented a new thing called the pre-diabetes, pre-hypertension, pre-everything, right? Pre-osteoporosis. All right, so, so the, the, they've run out. So they now have um, set the, the parameters to the place where almost nobody over the age of 65 will show healthy on a fasting glucose test because the numbers have been set so low that I'm probably a type two diabetic, which is ridiculous, right? So, so that's what's happened with this vitamin D. So you have inflated reference ranges, you have reverse causation, which we know is the case, which is why the intervention and prospective trials have been so terrible, generally speaking. Um, and by the way, watch my video on Tuesday, I'm gonna cover this, people after I covered vitamin D, earlier this week, people became apoplectic and sent me this video by this UK PhD guy who I like, I've watched some of his videos, but he basically reports on a study where in a psychiatric hospital, they gave people horse-like doses of vitamin D and their plasma levels went up to between 118 and 374. And they looked at their calcium levels and they didn't become abnormally high. So they deemed it safe and effective. Effective for what? effective for pretty, pretty blood work. You think the thing in psychiatric hospitals that'll make everybody better is knowing their vitamin D levels are off the charts, never been recorded before in the history of medicine. Is that what we're doing now? And, and this study, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I made another video about it. The people who sent this must not have watched the video and did not look up the original study because all it said was horse-like doses of vitamin D increase plasma levels and don't increase calcium. That's what it said, right? That's it. So anyway. Great. Um, I'm going to ask you a few questions on uh, on the microbiome. So you, you mentioned the, the microbiome. You talked about probiotics. What are other ways that we could improve uh, gut health? What are your thoughts on fermented, uh, on fermented foods? If you like them, eat them. If you never ate them, but you ate the right diet, you'd be fine. So people think that sauerkraut has like some kind of magical property. If you never had any sauerkraut, because in some places in the world, they have good microbiomes and they've never had the stuff, they're still fine. So that, that goes to, I never recommend the magical food approach. Like if you just consume this, all's good because there's no food that must be included in the diet. There is a dietary pattern to focus on. And um, is there any research though that shows that if you, you know, for people, you know, most Americans don't have a great microbiome and they want to rebuild it instead of having the over-the-counter uh, probiotic, could they have fermented food in instead in order to rebuild their their? Nope, because your body doesn't make the bacteria. These are rent. These bacteria are renting space from you. It's an exchange situation. I'm going to let you live here. I'm going to provide the food, and you get to see the world on me. All right. In return for that, but I got to provide the right food. In return for that, you're going to control my immune system, keep me healthy, help me digest food, and all those all those things that we know that the microbiome does. So you can't manufacture those critters. You've got to take them in externally 
The appendix used to be the backup source, but now we've wiped out everything in the appendix. We take that organ out like it doesn't make any difference anymore. So you're going to have to take probiotics. Yeah, thank you. And is there a role um, of leaky gut in autoimmune diseases? Absolutely. Uh, and, and it comes from bad food. Alcohol is a leading cause. Uh, again, antibiotics and, and drugs that just destroy the microbiome, uh, constipation. Yeah. All right. Great. All right. Our next question is, oops, as soon as I find my window here, our next question is coming from Anatina. Where are you from and what's your question? Hi, thank you. Thank you for, I'm from New York. Thank you for working so hard and give us your sober and intelligent analysis of health issues. Um, back to vitamin D. Um, vitamin B being a hormone our body makes and gets activated through sun. Could all the supplementation down-regulate our own production of this hormone? And we don't know. That, you bring up an interesting question. We don't know. Nobody knows. And, and nobody's interested in finding out because the horse is out of the barn. It's a multi-billion dollar industry and everybody knows. It's like every... The, medicine has many decades ago started um, really being a series of mantras. Safe and effective is a mantra. Early detection saves lives is a mantra. Everybody's vitamin D deficient is a mantra. And so people just repeat, there's a mind numbing um, mental disability that results from just repeating and repeating and repeating these messages until everybody knows that this is true. And the, I'm concerned about this vitamin D thing because we, we have no idea what the consequences are. I'm not the only person talking about it. Even the naturopathic community, there are some people saying, we have jumped on this bandwagon and um, the biggest, without any knowledge about what the long-term consequences were going to be, the biggest consequence I see right now that we can all acknowledge is going on is people have been told sun is bad for you. You'll get skin cancer if you go out in sun. So you're going to slather on sunscreen to go get your mail and you're going to sit inside pale as a ghost and pop vitamin D pills and you'll be fine. That is ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. People And then you've got people saying, you got to give babies vitamin D because there's no vitamin D in breast milk. No, you got to take babies outside. That's how babies produce vitamin D. And the idea, you got a pale as a ghost baby in the house. Ridiculous, right? So I think the biggest immediate downside of this vitamin D nonsense is we're training people to stay inside and not get a tan. That's how you make vitamin D and you make enough to store it for the winter, because here's a newsflash, we didn't used to have vitamin D factories back in the caveman days, right? Anybody wonder how humanity survived without all of this intervention all the time? It's kind of an interesting question, yeah. Great. But uh, since we uh, we need the sun for vitamin D activation, those people who live too far north and didn't have enough uh, uh, capacity to get loaded up in the sun during the summer, wouldn't well, you there do. be a rationale? A, I mean, if you're living in an, an Arctic area, you know, the, the, the extreme climates, but they have problems that are bigger than vitamin D. The average lifespan of an Eskimo or Inuit living on a high fat diet is 20 years lower than a person living in a major city just a couple hours away eating cheeseburgers and french fries. Those people have bigger problems than vitamin D. It's an extreme method of living, and it doesn't really pertain to somebody like me who lives in Columbus, Ohio. And like I said, they, they have other problems besides vitamin D that shorten their life. Great. Thank you. And we got two minutes left. So I'm going to take one more question uh, from the audience. Lisa, where are you from? And what is your question? 
I'm from Jackson, Tennessee. My question again, it kind of goes back to what you were asking about probiotics. You Pam, thank you again for your time. You recommend over-the-counter probiotics, but over and over again, we hear probiotics are ineffective and a waste of money and time. And it's just confusing because we hear one practitioner doctor say, you're wasting your time, get your probiotics through your food, your fiber. And then others say to take over the counter. So okay. Well, it's in the interest of time, I'm going to answer your question. So, so the first thing is the studies are completely different. All right. The first thing is understand that the average doctor who graduated medical school even 10 years ago knows nothing about probiotics. They know nothing about diet. They don't know how to read the medical literature, which is why we're having this discussion about vitamin D. I could talk to you about vitamin D until six o'clock tonight and not run out of things to show you that this is all a hoax. Okay. And if you read, if you actually started reading this stuff on your own, you'll see what I'm telling you is true. All right, so, but the point that I'm getting at is when probiotics are the only intervention, all right, people keep eating cheeseburgers and french fries, remain dehydrated and overweight, you see the same, you see a beneficial effect. Now, if you can get a beneficial effect with a probiotic without changing anything else, take that probiotic in conjunction with discontinuing six times a year antibiotic treatment and fixing the sinuses so they don't constantly get infected getting hydrated, eating a better diet, et cetera, et cetera, you're gonna amplify that effect. But it is simply not true that you can't find studies that show a positive effect from probiotics because the vast majority of them who have, that have been published actually do show benefit. Great, and with that, we're out of time. So thank you. It, it was really a wonderful experience talking to you, um, you. And, and with all the information you shared. If we can unmute the audience, please. Thank you. 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 Thank you.